Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. On today's show, we're talking about how to qualify a waterfront property as having potential for development. This show is the result of several inquiries from a friend who's looking to build a waterfront permanent residence on a desirable body of water near a major city. This friend, we'll call him Jeff, because that's his real name, brought several addresses to our team to see if they could be developed. Waterfront properties have a reputation for being expensive. These properties are in short supply compared with inland properties, and they typically sell for a premium in the market. It's easy to understand why if you love the water. Many of the existing waterfront homes were built at a time when less regulation existed. Today, protection of inland and oceanfront waterways has quite properly brought additional regulation in order to protect the local ecology and wildlife. Gone are the days when you could bring in a few truckloads of sand and voila, you have an instant private beach. Those types of shoreline modifications were common 50 years ago, but today they're prohibited in most areas. The waterfront on a named waterway is almost always protected. As a landowner, you don't usually own the actual waterfront, and the rules vary by jurisdiction. There are nine things to consider when buying a waterfront property. Number one, will you have access? Your property might border the water, but it doesn't mean you actually have access to the water. Number two, waterfront buffer zones. If you're within the regulation limit of tidal waters or wetlands, your property might be subject to additional scrutiny and requirements. This might be from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers or a local conservation authority. And just because a house exists on a property now doesn't mean that you'll be allowed to demolish and rebuild. In ecologically sensitive areas, you might not be permitted to install a septic system. If you don't have access to municipal services and you can't install a septic system, then you practically cannot build. Number three, littoral rights. And this is spelled L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L. These are the rights commonly granted to owners of a property that border a bay, a large lake, an ocean, or the sea. Owners of these properties abutting these bodies of water have an unrestricted right to use the water and ownership of the land occurs right up to the mean high watermark. Land below that level is owned by the government. Number four, riparian rights. If the owner has riparian rights, then they have the right to use the water but not to pollute it. Depending on the jurisdiction, you might buy waterfront property either with or without riparian rights. Number five, watering rights. In agricultural areas, the rights to use the water for agricultural purposes might be controlled by special agreements between property owners. Where water is scarce, the doctrine of prior appropriation might apply. That means the state has specific doctrine and places control of the water resources with the state rather than individual property owners. Number six, water depth. Waterfront owners often make the assumption about the navigable depth of the area. Some have resorted to dredging to make the underwater contours more favorable for boating. If the water is considered navigable, the maintenance of the navigable channels might be the responsibility of the Coast Guard, or in some cases the local municipality. Number seven, docks and piers. Depending on the location, you may or may not be allowed to install a seasonal dock. Some areas only allow floating docks with chain anchors to the bottom. Some only want piles set in the bottom in the sea floor. The local, federal, state, and county agencies may have rules that govern the applications for permits and the placement of docks and piers. Number eight, flood insurance. The elevation of the property above sea level or mean high watermark can affect the cost of flood insurance dramatically. If the property is located in a designated floodplain, it might be impossible to get flood insurance. In fact, it might be impossible to even get a permit to build, whether the property is insurable or not. Number nine, soil stability. 
water from a neighboring waterway has a tendency to permeate the soil and can result in a high water table. If you dig down to install a foundation, you might find the ground to be saturated or even underwater. Land that is wet often behaves more like a fluid than a solid. It can be unstable for building purposes. Your due diligence should include a geotechnical survey for soil stability. And if the soil is not stable, you might have to draw piles deep down into the bedrock in order to create a stable platform on which to build a foundation. These piles could be structural columns like soldier piles that anchor the foundation of the bedrock, or they could be sheet piles that are made of structural steel and they form a wall of corrugated steel. The cost of these piles can multiply your construction costs, and this piece of due diligence is key to understanding your site costs. In the case of my friend Jeff's inquiries, none of the properties that he surfaced could in fact be developed. One of them was even listed for sale on the MLS at an attractive price. But since that property could not be developed, the only useful purpose would be for that property to be consolidated with the existing property next door that had a house on it in order to create a larger property. But it could not be developed independently. These are the types of situations that often present themselves in waterfront settings. As you think about that, you want to pay very close attention and develop a special checklist for conducting due diligence on waterfront properties. Have an awesome rest of your day. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.